Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 74, being recorded on Wednesday, March 8th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners, we're excited to have you this week. Jason, I was talking to a bunch of brands and ex-Amazonians over the last six months or so, and they all kept saying, Hey, Scott, have you talked to Melissa? Have you talked to Melissa? You need to talk to Melissa. Melissa, Melissa, Melissa. Finally, I was like, who is this mysterious Melissa that everyone keeps talking about? Turns out her name is Melissa Burdick, and she spent over a decade at Amazon and is now an expert in e-commerce and CPG. I had a conversation with her, and it was so enlightening and exhausting. I had to take a two-hour nap. She's super high energy. And I said, I've got to get her on our high energy podcast. Um, so we are really excited to have Melissa on the Jason and Scott show. Hey, Melissa, welcome, welcome to the Melissa. show. Thanks, guys. I better not disappoint. I better not put people to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you've got the pressure to be super high energy. Sorry, I didn't. You can be low energy. I know it's late there. So that's fine. <laughs> For the record, I feel Scott needs a nap every day, whether he talks to Melissa or not. So I don't think you can hold yourself accountable. Okay, good to know. That is true. Yeah, there's there may or may not be a correlation there. So uh, let's start off by talking about uh, your background. So you were at Amazon for a decade, which is kind of pretty amazing. Tell us a little bit about your Amazon career. Sure. I was there from 2005 to 2015, and I was hired to help launch the consumables business back in 2005. So when I landed there, Amazon was drop shipping from drugstore.com. Um, who is now not around anymore. But that was kind of how they they started the store. And so I was part of a, a, a very small buying team of maybe about five other buyers. And we were there to kind of establish all the direct relationships with all the the big manufacturers, everyone from Procter & Gamble to Burt's Bees. And so I think um, during that time, I spent five years in retail category management, and I managed something like 300 brands and 20,000 SKUs. If it didn't plug in, I pretty much managed it. Um, so I spent five years there. And then because I was starting to work with a lot of the manufacturers that are kind of big in marketing, like Procter & Gamble and Unilever, uh, they started kind of leaning in to the display advertising platform, which was also very new at the time, like around 2009. And I moved over to that team and spent five years within the Amazon Media Group, kind of different different roles, everything from uh, creating new e-commerce ads to monetizing pretty much anything that you can can think of and was able to work with a lot of teams within Amazon to do that. So it was, it was pretty fun. Cool. Is consumables the same thing as what we would call CPG in kind of the non-Amazon world? Yes. So grocery, health and personal care, over-the-counter, um, all those kind of anything that you find in a drugstore. Okay. Awesome. And then uh, what are you doing now? Uh, now, I uh, help create the e-commerce capabilities for the Mars agency, and I help brands with their e-commerce strategies. Cool. Do you guys sell candy bars as well, or is that uh, am I <laughs> confused with another company? I think you're probably getting that confused with another company, but I think there's a couple candy bars around. Okay, and no Blue Origin tie-in with uh, with this one either, right? <laughs> no, but I'd like to. I'd like to know more about that too. <laughs> Cool. I have to ask every uh, everyone I know that's been at Amazon if they have an interesting Jeff story. What's your? You probably have a bunch having been there ten years, but what's what's one kind of that comes to mind? One that kind of happened early on, and and this is kind of half urban urban myth, and kind of half we had to come up with an explanation, but I think it actually did happen. But but early on in the consumables category creation. And as you guys probably know, Jeff is extremely customer obsessed and his wife received an email that contained a sexual wellness product. And so that sexual wellness category was, you know, everyday items that people use, but he felt like 
it was really an invasion of privacy and, and he didn't want any kind of outbound marketing um, to go out to customers surrounding that category. So that kind of kicked off really restrictive rules around how to um, do any kind of marketing or advertising around any of those product categories, which is still the case today. Like today you can't advertise any of those type of products on the Amazon homepage. And it was really restrictive for those brands who wanted to grow those categories, but he, um, he really wanted to put the customer first in that, in that place. And even though there was a lot of money to be had and, um, opportunities to, to go about. He was he was pretty rigid about that requirement. Yeah. Well that's a bit of an edgy one. I won't I'm not gonna ask any questions. I'll get in trouble. <laughs> the uh <laughs> my my takeaway um, is if you work at Amazon and there's some part of your job you don't like, just send an offensive email to Jeff's wife about that and <laughs> he'll put a stop to it instantly. Yes. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Um, one time we were chatting and you were talking about how it kind of feels like Seattle is almost like the new Bentonville. Uh, explain what that means to the listeners. Just kind of, I think that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, basically the situation is that a lot of these brands are kind of moving into Seattle and creating offices. So similar to Bentonville to support Walmart, all these manufacturers and suppliers created offices there, and it kind of became this big supplier community. And that was never the case in Seattle. Um, there were like no brands that had offices here. But very recently in the past couple of years, they're all kind of moving in here. And especially within the CPG space, consumable space, a lot of them have created satellite offices, you know, tapping into some ex-Amazon talent, uh, people who have left Amazon and may not want to move out to to their headquarters on the East Coast, potentially, um, and then also to be closer to Amazon. So, uh, and I have a lot of colleagues and friends that have left Amazon to lead e-commerce at these brands all here in Seattle. Cool. Like uh, we had Neil from Mundley's on the show and he's a uh, falls Absolutely. into that camp, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Neil's great. Yeah. The, I, I do see the similarity. I will point out one huge difference 20 years into Walmart's uh, voyage in Bentonville. Bentonville was still a dry County and, and I'm in Seattle right now. I can attest to the fact that it's anything but dry. And we also have a Nordstrom and better shopping, I think. <laughs> Uh, this this is true. I, I think Dillard's is very offended by that comment, but I, I definitely see your point. <laughs> so, Melissa, you were at Amazon sort of at the very beginning of their foray into CPG, and obviously, uh, it's evolved quite a bit. And as, as you, you know, evidenced by all the the brands that have moved here, it's a very significant business now. Can you talk a little bit about how you've sort of seen that evolution play out? Sure. Um, I think CBT has changed quite a bit. Um, it started with kind of brands when they launched on the platform, they kind of stuck their offline assortment and square peg round hole kind of put it on online. And a lot of those products are really not great for the online channel. Things like glass that breaks, um, seals that, that leak, um, a lot of liquids and things like that would kind of soak into people's books and other things that they got. And um, trust me, we got a lot of pictures of those uh, shipments that got sent to customers early on in the early days. And so a lot of those products were just really not not friendly for the online channel. And then people became adopting online and they started sealing caps and creating frustration-free packaging and shipping own container and and it's, it's amazing still to me how hard it is to create variety packs. Uh, you know, like Amazon tends to, to, because of their profitability kind of challenges and because of their different platforms, they, they tend to sell larger quantities. And so brands started creating variety packs and those sell, those sell really well. So that was kind of the early days and all, all to today where brands are starting to create actual products for the online channel. I think Tide was really an early one that created the Tide Pod, which is a great product for online because it's super lightweight, it's concentrated, um, it ships well. So that's kind of the evolution. Very cool. And do so in that sort of middle evolution 
I, I'm just curious, were the CPGs maybe using more of their sort of club packs and those kinds of things uh, in the online channel because of the the sizes, or were they also not very suitable? Club packs are great. The problem is always access to them. And so it kind of differed um, in terms of the contracts that those manufacturers had with the clubs. And sometimes they wouldn't give access to the club packs. And especially you had to, you actually had to buy into certain quantities, which that also is counter to the way that Amazon works. You know, you can drop a pallet and, and really large quantities of product to the clubs, whereas Amazon's model is very different. They want small quantities of, of many products. Got it. Um, so now the, the business has all grown up. And today, if you're a CPG and you're trying to sell on Amazon, what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face in being successful? Well, I think that um, one is there's such a long way to go um, that that's kind of the very early stages of maturity. And I would would still say that because e-commerce within this space is still such a small percentage of of CBG company sales, it's typically anywhere between 1% to um, small digits numbers, uh, you know, less than five, that there's still not a huge focus on it. So I still think there's a lot of room to go. But I think that some of the big challenges that they face, um, and one is uh, another acronym. There's a lot of acronyms in Amazon speak. And one that um, another one that we can throw out there is um, CRAP, which stands for can't realize a profit. (laughs) And if you're a, if you're a CPG company working on Amazon, you've you've probably heard that terminology, and it's basically one of the biggest challenges that brands face today. And that is that Amazon essentially, instead of looking at you at a portfolio level in terms of profitability, they look at you at an item level, and so every item has to stand on its own in terms of um, profitability, and so that makes it super challenging. And when they uh, are not profitable and they can't see any path forward, they uh, are not able to sell the product. So that's that's kind of the huge one. Assortment still remains a big challenge. Um, internal expertise at the brands for in e-commerce is also a big challenge. Um, and really just the complexity of the Amazon platform is another big challenge to them. There's multiple different platforms and it, it operates at a pace that people are really not used to. Um, it's very dynamic and changing all the time. So trying to keep up with all those changes is also uh, pretty challenging. Yep. And is that, do you feel like that's exacerbated from the, the standpoint of uh, digital not being a huge percentage of CPG yet? It, uh, Amazon isn't usually getting like the most senior sales team from a, a major CPG. And so you, you, you tend to get, you know, this, this slightly less experienced team. And then they're asked to sort of evolve at Amazon's pace, which is a whole different animal than the, the Walmarts and Kroger's of the world. Yeah, I definitely think that was true. Um, I think more and more we're seeing that. I think, I think last year, especially there was kind of this trend of um, even C levels and board members saying, Hey, we need an e-commerce strategy. Um, And I think that this year, what I'm seeing is a lot of people looking to implement that. And the first thing that they're looking at doing is hiring resources that have that expertise. So if you look at kind of job recs out there, there's tons of director of e-commerce, VP of e-commerce roles within these companies. And so I think that they're looking to, exactly as you pointed out, to kind of step that up and get that talent in to be able to to figure out the space in, in a better way. That that makes perfect sense. Another pain point I've heard mentioned a few times is if if you are used to selling at a traditional brick and mortar retailer, there's a a finite amount of information that you need to provide to that retailer to get your product listed and on the shelf. And it it, it literally might be six or seven attributes. And of course, when you're trying to sell on Amazon, they're more likely to ask you for like sixty attributes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a huge challenge for, um, a lot of companies because it's, it's the state of their digital content. So they sometimes don't have it. (laughs) They don't have any. And that's one of the biggest challenges because item setup, you need to have ingredients and, 
uh, directions and indications and, I mean, tons and tons of fields that aren't even collected, hazmat information. So all collecting all that information and storing it is, is a huge challenge. And then that's just basic content. On top of that, the tr- you really need to have enhanced content. And that's, you know, a whole nother story of uh, information and content that people don't have. For sure. Um, and I know another one that I get asked a lot about is like just the whole alphabet soup of different ways of going to market on Amazon. And, you know, um, you, if you're really lucky, you're in subscribe and save. But if you're, you know, getting relegated to pantry, that's potentially a bad thing. Like, um, can you kind of walk us through what the what sort of the different flavors of uh, formats that are available on Amazon today for CPGs? Yeah. So it all started with the core platforms, the, the, the Amazon.com platform, which is the one that everybody is familiar with. And because they started selling in these kind of bigger quantities, they started thinking about other formats. So Prime Pantry, so one, you have to be a Prime customer to have access to it, is more of a market basket building kind of platform. And those are uh, potentially smaller size quantities, more of the club pack size in potentially each's quantities. But the idea is to fill up a box that then gets shipped to you for a price. Um, There's also the Amazon Fresh platform. So that's more of the fresh direct where they can sell eggs and dairy products. Um, the new one that they've launched is Prime Now, which is within one one to two hour delivery. And have you guys experienced Prime Now yourselves? Scott and I both yes, live in Prime Now markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm speaking on a headset that I bought from the Prime Now um, today, but it's it's really a, a great um, new platform where. You know, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge of products that's that's growing uh, more quickly. And then, of course, a lot of a lot of people have been talking about the Amazon Go format, which uh, is a beta program for basically open to Amazon customers right now or Amazon employees. I mean, um, but that's that's also another another format where uh, you actually physically can go in and pick up a product um, and then check out frictionless. So those are the hashtag J Watt. Just walk out <laughs> technology. There you yeah. go. Um, <laughs> what I think is kind of funny about um, just as a side note with a uh, with that format. So it's it's kind of a maybe I'm the only one that thinks this is funny, but all the tech companies within you know like between Facebook and and Google and and all of those guys, they all have like free like drinks and snacks at their companies. But I think true to the Amazon culture of frugality, the Amazon Go building is um, at the bottom of the day one building, which is one of the newest and, and really nicest buildings. And basically it's right now in beta test with the Amazon employees. So if they want snacks and, and food, they can go down there and go grab it really easily, but, but they have to pay for it. That, I think <laughs> yeah. that's a, a great point. Although I am happy for all the day one employees. Uh, I happen to walk by there today and there's a liquor license application on the Amazon go store. There you go. Mm. Well, when they're working late at night, they can go, they can go um, grab drinks too. Do the windows open in that building? Isn't that the, the big feature? From that one article where they were like, well, at least the window's open. Oh, that's what, I didn't read that one. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Jeff's okay. famous response when, when someone asked him about all the quality of life things that, you know, Google and Facebook give their employees. I, if I remember correctly, like Jeff's comment was, uh, you know, we, we've really evaluated the things that our employees value the most. And so, for example, the windows in our office open. Oh, I see. Which sounded a get, little tone deaf. <laughs> and, and they and they get bananas. Have you seen the banana stand? No. no. Oh. Tell us about the bananas. You don't know about the banana stand? No, no. this is secret insider information. You're breaking right now. <laughs> uh, they have um, they've had a banana stand, I think, for the last year. Well, where they um, literally will give a banana to anyone who wants to have one right outside their office. Now, is that because Amazon employees were cramping up a lot and they needed more potassium or something? Or Maybe they bought too many bananas. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, parenthetically, that is the best-selling skew at Walmart. So I wonder if there's some they're trying to catch Walmart and the banana race or something. Maybe. <laughs> uh, 
so I'm, I'm excited to finally get to the, the part of the show I'm most excited to talk about because most of our shows are very family friendly and Amazon has this rate or uh, I'm sorry, iTunes has a rating system for podcasts and I always have to click that we're a clean podcast because we don't get to use any profanity. Uh, but tonight we're breaking all the rules. Um, you mentioned one of the big pain points for CPGs uh, is crap product. Um, <laughs> And and you said that that stood for uh, can't realize a profit exactly. Um, so I'm assuming, uh, or I think I read that that uh, maybe wasn't initially intended to be a a external facing acronym, but it, it basically has become one, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it was um, it was created internally, and it was a process that the the finance people kind of came up with, and I think that they thought it was really pretty funny, um, and it was just too good to be held internally, and so it just kind of got out into the ecosystem organically, and now it's it's like another one of the Amazon acronyms. Got very interesting, and so one of the challenges. I certainly get the idea of what what could make a a crap product, like in terms of a low value, um, heavy, uh, expensive to ship product, or or something that didn't have um, super high demand, or some some of those things. But uh, if you have a uh, some products that Amazon is uh, classifying as crap, what what are some of the things that you can do as a CPG to to get out of that penalty box. Um, so, and, and, and to clarify, so there's actually some different levels of crap. So there's, there's a couple of, let's call it pre-crap. And that's when Amazon restricts you from um, being able to offer a discount. So that's a different threshold of crap. Then there's a tighter guardrail and that's within, and I think we'll get it into it later, but it's around the paid search platform. So um, they have a really strict guardrail around being able to advertise crap items and that's a different level of crap. And then there's like full out, they've, they've tried a lot of things and there's absolutely nothing they can do um, and you're crapped out. So you asked about some things of... What, what can you do to prevent these things or what can you do to um, kind of short-term fixes? And so um, you can pay your way out of crap. So that's, that's definitely an option. And Amazon will tell you how much you can pay your way out of that so that they can be um, neutral on the product and still be able to sell it. Um, and and Melissa, that does think- pay literally equal like writing a check to Amazon or does that mean yeah. using some of their marketing services? Got it. Okay. It means uh, paying for a check um, to be able to, you know, Amazon's losing, you know, $10 a unit on this product. And there's, you know, shipping and all the costs, they're, they're really expensive. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a hands tied kind of thing. So that's, that's one option. One that I think is um, kind of interesting, especially within the CPG space, is implementing a map policy. Because at the end of the day, there's, there's so much pricing pressure that's happening. And it's, it's that downward pricing pressure that's causing these prices to go down. And so if you can kind of get them back up to some normal levels, um, you know, you technically may have some more margin in there before you you hit these kind of constraints. And so implementing a map policy is something that um, a lot of brands are starting to think about. Um, so there's, there's short-term things, and that's like digging into the cost drivers of your business. Uh, you know, if you have unnecessary prep happening to your products, if you have, um, you know, if you're, there's something, and this might be a little bit, too technical or tactical, but if you become, if you're a heavy product, you get put into this non-sortable warehouse facility. Um, and that's a, a higher cost model to the Amazon model. So trying to get into the non-sortable facility if you're on the edge. So there's, there's a lot of kind of cost drivers to dig into, to think about, um, being able to help solve for some of these problems. Uh, and then of yeah, course, the, the one, the, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. The the one diagram I saw, it was kind of like this quadrant diagram and stuff that's crap tends to be kind of on the heavy side and under, um, you know, it used to be like five to eight dollars. Um, 
So if you're not heavy and you're under five to eight dollars, then you can kind of do some bundling and things like that. Is uh, so, so maybe give listeners a little bit more of an idea of like what falls into that. What tip, what typically are the things that are falling into this this kind of crap crap house? Yeah. So it's <laughs> um, so it's really heavy liquids. It's it's kind of this cost to weight ratio that happens. Yeah. And um, especially if it's a conventional product that has lower margin into it, um, if it's heavily distributed within multiple retailers and there's a mm-hmm. lot of kind of price discounting, that happens. But it's it's typically these heavy products, low ASP, which is average yeah. selling price. So if you're under like $9, you kind of are, are fitting into that kind of category. And so you will see a lot of bundling. And so that's, that's really when we first started the consumables business, you'll, we kind of, every, every year the pendulum swung and it was um, going from selling eaches to selling uh, kind of cases and inner sleeve quantities. And so basically the manufacturer would create these different quantities and you would figure out how can we most efficiently sell these. So if you can kind of get that average selling price up, by bundling more products together. And that's where like kind of the variety pack thing comes in because those are good products to sell online that still give the customer variety, but it's not like a six pack case of Pepto-Bismol or something. Got it. And then um, how about volume? So like uh, I imagine like the big giant rolls of toilet paper and bounty and, and that kind of stuff. Does that tend to fall in the crap? Cause it kind of tips over the, it's not heavy, but you know, now shippers look at kind of the volumetric dimensions. Does that stuff right. kind of fall into crap uh, or is it expensive enough that it's okay? It's it, that kind of goes into the non sortable, sortable network uh, uh, conversation where it becomes really bulky and then it gets overboxed into, so it gets, you know, a lot of extra prep. And so that's when, if that stuff can ship in an, its own container where it can be like, not have to be put into another box and kind of kept within the right fulfillment network. Those are, those are some of those things. And Melissa, is it fair to say like one thing we didn't cover uh, part of the reason you might care and want to make sure Amazon carries your crap, even though it's not profitable is because for you as the CPG, that, that unprofitable product could be, part of a basket that drives other profitable products from your, your line. And these days, Amazon's a super important product search engine, right? And so if 44% of all the product searches are starting on Amazon and you, you have a super important skew to you, you want to make sure customers find that product when they search for it. And if Amazon kicks you off because they can't sell your product profitably, that, that potentially can be a pain point for you. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah, you do. And and that that also is kind of where the third-party merchants come into play because on these products that that maybe Amazon can't sell um, as a first-party merchant, there are third-party merchants that potentially can sell those products. So they there potentially will be that selection. But then that's also where the different channels kind of come into play. Um, so maybe you can't sell on the core platform, but you can on the pantry platform. And so then you'll be, you know, there's there's kind of different, as we were talking about solutions, there's something that Amazon has, which is the add-on program. And so, you know, you aren't able to just, even if you're prime, you have to buy a certain amount to be able to ship that to you, or it could be prime exclusive. So you have to be a prime customer to buy it. So those are two other ways that those products kind of fall in. And then sometimes they get relegated to the pantry program, which is, which is, um, small, but growing smaller, but growing. And so those are some other ways. Got it. And, um, I, I've heard an urban legend. Maybe you can tell me whether it's, it's, it's true or not, but like, I, I feel like some CPGs feel like if they can get into the subscribe and save program that once prime customers start putting those products on their, their subscription lists, that, that that makes it more painful for Amazon to sort of kick them off the platform, and so that that might give you a little extra protection from from some of those those uh, automated crap systems. Absolutely, that that kind of provides like a thin a thin layer of protection between you and the crap list, um, because Amazon, going back to their customer obsession, they hate um, 
they hate kind of disappointing their customers. And so if there's a lot of subscriptions on a potential crap item, that's definitely a, a kind of good way to to keep them in the program. And then also subscribe and save has good economics associated with it. So because Amazon can forecast when that item ships to you, they can slow ship it to you. So even if you're a prime customer, when you would get it in, you know, like a day or two, they know you're, they may slow ship it to you the slowest way possible. So that kind of cuts out some costs there. Awesome. How about, um, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about two years ago, and it talked about, I think it called out PNG, and it may have been about diapers specifically, but it talked about a lot of the CPG guys actually doing a lot of the shipping themselves. So to kind of, instead of shipping it in bulk to an Amazon fulfillment facility, they were doing almost like merchant fulfilled prime eligible, seller fulfilled prime kind of stuff. Um, do you see a lot of that? Is that is that another way to solve this crap problem? Um, so I think that that program was called Amazon Flex at the time. And that basically was where Amazon would go into the where into like their warehouse and yeah. slap shipping labels and ship directly to the customer. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just not a scalable solution. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, you know, on diapers, it makes a lot of sense because it's a really fast moving skew, but it, it doesn't scale well across many, many brands, um, many warehouses, that kind of thing. If I remember right, Target was a huge fan of that Amazon Flex program. <laughs> I think they famously like wrote a, a a letter to all their vendors asking them not to participate. <laughs> could see why. Well, we could uh, Jason and I could talk about crap all night, and frequently we do on the show. But um, bum. Uh, but you know, let's let's shift gears. Uh, you and I talk a lot about. Uh, brands and how they approach Amazon. And just so listeners kind of understand the framework here, uh, if you didn't listen to the Jason and Scott deep dive, uh, shame on you, but go ahead and listen to it uh, after this. The So I use the vernacular 1P, which is like the traditional wholesale relationship, and then 3P, which is the marketplace. Um, you know, what we're seeing on the channel advisor side is more and more retailers, uh, brands, they, they, they have this it kind of starts with one a friction point with Amazon of some kind, and it's usually they're doing one P. It's kind of how the relationship works. They have a wholesale relationship, uh, and then either they have a pricing challenge uh, or a third party marketplace challenge or a selection challenge. So, so something happens in that relationship where they're kind of like they want to change the relationship. Uh, and if it's pricing and selection, a lot of times the brand wants to move all their products from wholesale to kind of a third party so that they can control the pricing and selection. Uh, but uh, Amazon has pretty strict rules around that. They don't really allow that to happen. So what we see is this kind of, uh, and there's other reasons to do it, but those are kind of the, the main ones. So we've seen this kind of what I would call a hybrid program where, where brands are doing 1P and then they're doing some 3P as well. So whatever Amazon doesn't take wholesale, they're they're putting on the 3P side. Um, do you see that happening in the brands you're working with? And, and what are some of the, do, do you hear those same kind of concerns from brands? Yeah, I think that there is a, we call it a hybrid account, and there has been a lot of that happening more and more, and there's kind of two legit reasons. Um, one is there's kind of this initiative at Amazon, and it's it's called Hands Off the Wheel, and it's essentially automation. It's the way that Amazon scales, and their inventory management system is highly automated. So when you launch a new item, it takes about three to four months for it to get mature in retail because they're kind of figuring out their demand and they're, they're not ordering large quantities. And then also on long tail items, they don't do a gr- that automated inventory system doesn't do a great job either. And so hybrid accounts kind of allows you to have both the first party offering. And when you run out, it has kind of a, a backfill for, for the offering so that it can, it can backfill those, those items. And then also another one is when Amazon craps out your item and they say, you know, we don't want this item anymore. Um, a lot of times brands will will bring that back under their third-party account. Ah, interesting. Cool. Um, and then uh, do you do the brands that come to you, do they talk about, uh, I want to go all third-party? Have you ever had that kind of thing happen? Um, you know, a lot of the brands feel like 
the ones that have been first party for a long time, and especially if they have a really deep relationship with Amazon, they're more interested in in getting more integrated with Amazon on the first party side. And with 3P, there's there's not as much available to them in terms of having deep relationships and strategic conversations. So that that hasn't been as much of a conversation that I've been okay. a part of. Interesting. Yeah. It- Definitely, kind of really hot in the apparel side. So I don't know about the CPG side. It seems like they're uh, they're uh, you know they're more used to that kind of a model and and more more friendly with it. Um, but one of the things I would imagine that would concern the CPG guys is this explosion of private label product. Um, you know, we saw it in the early days with some cabling and things through Amazon Basics. Um, what are uh, what's Amazon doing as far as private label and CPG? Um, they did a diaper thing kind of to compete with Honest Guys, and they shut that down. And it looks like you know some of it's coming back. So, give us kind of your perspective on what's going on in, in that that aspect of Amazon. Yeah, I think um, they've had and in, in kind of all over within multiple categories like apparel. There's been kind of an explosion with the private label um, kind of categories, and within within consumable space, there's private label laundry detergent, chips, nuts, popcorn, cookies, eggs, um, baby food. And then even their newest one is vitamins and supplements. Um, And so I think that they're, you know, one of the things that they have is all the data. Um, They know the market size of these categories. And also I think they're going after some of the categories that are kind of hard, hard for them to solve, like laundry detergent and eggs. Um, uh, for them to be able to kind of figure out themselves and create products that work for them. What what uh, what trade name do they use for those? Is there a, kind of an umbrella, or are there a bunch of them? There's a bunch of them. There's um, Presto's the laundry detergent. They have Wickedly Prime, which is chips and popcorn and cookies. I think Happy Belly is eggs and nuts. Mama Bear is the baby food. And then Elements is kind of their like very transparent brand. It's Wipes and it's their newest one. And it's the one that has uh, – that one's really interesting because, uh, for example, on the vitamins and supplements, you can uh, – and both with, with the Wipes too, you can, you can scan your product and you can get all this great information about it. I haven't tried it myself. But um, the detail page will, will certainly tell you all about about it. But you get tons of information about it. And what's interesting about like the supplements category is that it's not FDA regulated. And so in this case, you know, you get a lot of great information about where that product sourced. And I think that's really important to people, especially I think that's a consumer behavior that's that's really uh, shifting and changing now. Yeah, when you scan it, so I'm, I've got the jar of vitamins in front of me and I scan it with the Amazon app. Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, I think it has a QR code on it. And I think you can, you can, you can scan the QR code and it gets all that information Uh, to you. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. I got to Jason. We'll have to test that out. Well, the other interesting thing is you could, but when they launched that product, you actually couldn't buy it. So, and you still can't. So you actually, um, can email, you can sign up to be emailed to be selected to buy the product, which is, which mm. is a first. So I think that that's kind of interesting. So you're saying I'm going to have to wait to get my turmeric. You are, and you may not be selected. I don't know. You might be, you might be not on the list. I feel like I'm not on a lot of lists. And then the lists I am on are probably not the ones I want to be on. <laughs> uh, uh, I did see a, a report last year. I want to say it was from 1010 data and they were talking about like the battery category and they, their data set basically showed that, that Amazon basics had more market share online than Duracell did in the battery category. And that wasn't even just at Amazon. That was all online sales. Amazon's private label was, was ahead of Duracell. Wow. Yeah, that's um batteries has has really done a good job. It's pretty amazing. So so if I'm a brand and Amazon's kind of out there competing with me on this, are they concerned or do they, you know, every grocery store does it and they're kind of like, well, my brand will uh, you know, I've spent all this money building this brand. It it shouldn't be uh concerned about, you know, mama bear and all this kind of stuff. Uh what how are folks kind of feeling about that? Um, I think that they, so I think I'm more concerned than, than most of my clients that are friends, but like it, whenever I'm sitting there in these meetings, I'm, I'm always one that always asks 
So when are you coming out with private label? Like that, that kind of freaks me out, but maybe because I'm, I'm a little bit tainted because I know like all the marketing levers that they're pulling, um, to be able to promote their products. But I think, I think that they are all wary of it and they kind of fall into different camps. So some people want to go source it. So some people want to be the source of Amazon's private label. Um, other people have looked at it and they've determined that basically what Amazon's asking them is, is just not something that they can do either doesn't financially make sense for them or, or they don't even make enough product for their own brands. And so I think that, you know, the difference is that Amazon has so much of the e-commerce, you know, sales versus, uh, you know, retail stores with their private label. Um, and then, you know, it kind of as a question about does Amazon play fair with their private label? And I think for the most part they do, but, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this Amazon choice, um, kind of indication, which has to do with the Alexa deals. When you ask Alexa, like, send me batteries, it'll, it'll send you the Amazon choice. And one click retail actually came out with an interesting article and they had observed that pretty much all the Amazon choice items, even though they weren't the most popular were all the Amazon private label and consumables. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I I'm curious in, uh, Traditional brick and mortar retailers that obviously do a lot of private label now, um, it's not uncommon that that the retailer overtly uses the threat of private label um, when they're negotiating with brands. So, like I've sat in on the like annual vendor meetings when a big retailer is like, "Here are the things that are going to happen if you're on good terms with us, and you know you're getting better promotional spots and more shelf space and all this stuff. And here are the things that are going to happen if you're on bad terms with us. And one of the things is." We're going to invest more in private label in your category. Um, does Amazon play those same sort of overt games, or are they a little more subtle about how they use that private label sword at this point? You know, in all the conversations that I've been part of, it, it's really been more like, hey, can you do private label for us? It's been a lot more cordial and like, hey, do you do you want to try to look at this with us? So they've been a lot more friendly about it now. You know, I don't know about the future, but I think that it's just an area that they're really interested in growing and figuring out who the right partners are for them to do that with. So they haven't, you know, there haven't been those those type of threats that I've seen. Okay. And is there anything that the the national brands can learn from how Amazon uh, manages their own private label products? Like, should brands be watching the product detail page to learn how to do content and stuff like that? What's the... What are the best practices? Absolutely. I think that that's, um, you know, whenever Amazon does something, it's extremely data-driven. And so I always tell brands, and I always make a study of it myself, like I always like to buy the product and see how it comes shipped and packed to me. And like if you buy the the Mama Bear um, uh, baby food, they really reinforced, you know, very solidly how that comes back to you because it's like these glass jars and that's definitely a problem with baby food. Um, so everything from how they're packaging it, uh, you know, the elements, vitamins with how they're being so transparent about the ingredients and they have all these tests and information about it. The the level of their content is the, the best in class and what I would have brands strive to be able to achieve. So I think there's a lot to learn from those guys. Cool. Last, last quick question around kind of brands on Amazon. Uh, another thing we're seeing is this, this massive influx of Chinese things. And again, I don't spend enough time in CPG to know if it's impacting them. But, you know, what, what's happening is these factories in China are able to put product on Amazon. Amazon seems to have this supply chain thing called Dragon Boat that allows them to, you know, get inside of FBA, be prime eligible, and then they have this direct channel to all the Amazon buyers. Uh, and it's really disrupting a lot of brands. Um, so you kind of have brands sitting up top, then you have private label, and then you have kind of China stuff even kind of underneath. Uh, is that happening in CPG or is that just kind of more, I, I see it in apparel and electronics uh, the most from my side. It's not as much. I mean, I, I, I remember, um, have things happening with like Gillette cartridges where there was kind of a, an issue and, and Amazon took uh, a really hard policy against that because in the consumable space, like people are eating that stuff. And so, yeah. you know, that, that stuff doesn't really get as impacted, I think, as, as other categories do with that stuff, because it's, it's so bad if it, if it were to happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. So you were there kind of at the birth of Amazon's kind of ad platforms. Um, Jason mentioned it earlier, but, you know, there's several reports, Bloom, Reach, and Forrester, they show, uh, and Jason, it's 55%. It was 45% last year that all product of all product searches are now on Amazon. Um, one thing that's interesting, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a, a geek on this stuff. In Amazon, uh, when they file their 10K every year, which is the annual report, not the Qs, which are the quarterlies, um, sometimes they have to do new disclosures that they've kind of worked out with from the SEC. Uh, and this year, there was a cornucopia of new disclosures, and one of them is they actually broke out the revenues for sponsored products. That was $1.4 billion in 2016. Um, and then inside other, if you take out AWS and you do some calculus, you can kind of get a range of effectively when you add up all the pieces of Amazon's ad business being 2 to $3 billion. Um, What's uh, maybe walk us through the different programs that are out there? It's a little bit of alphabet soup. I always get there's so many acronyms floating around. Uh, I know it confuses me and it may confuse other folks. But so maybe give us kind of a little little overview of that, and then what is um, you know what are what are the things that are really effective for brands? Yeah. So there's there's kind of um, two different models, I guess. One is the display advertising platform. That's a, a CPM cost per thousand. Um, kind of pricing model. And those are display advertising on Kindle, mobile, desktop, their audience extension product. So off of of Amazon, uh, on other sites using their targeting. And then also Fire TV, which is is new and um, kind of a little bit less popular. Um, And then there's also AMS, which is Amazon Marketing Services, and that's where all the paid search um, kind of products live. And that's sponsor products, headline search, and product display ads. There's three different ad types. And those also go across different multiple platforms, except not Kindle. And uh, that is a cost-per-click model. And first-party and third-party don't have equal parity of access to some of these products. So within, for example, sponsored products, that's that really started first and foremost for third-party merchants, but expanded into the first-party world. And then a couple of those other products are only available to first parties. Is yeah, that like a mouthful? Display. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's really helpful. So the AMG, which is the display CPM network, is uh, that's first-party only, right? It is. It's it's starting to become more. Prob- it's it's starting to open up a little bit, um, but but it's mostly to first parties. Yep. And then, um, you know, a lot of brands have mentioned to me that they really like this ARA. What's that? ARA is is data. So that's uh, or uh, yeah, it's a- analytics. And so there's a basic and a premium version of it. And so that's basically. Um, the ability to see like your sales data and and that kind of stuff. And and I will say that it's it's a little bit kind of hard to use and and clunky in terms of of um, kind of using it on an everyday basis. But it does be able it does provide you self service data analytics. Yeah. So what are um... So the 3P world, we're always craving more data, and you know we always imagine that that's that's pretty juicy stuff. So it's interesting that you say it's kind of hard to work with. But so what what's some of the things I would look at? So so if I'm Pampers, can I see what Loves is doing, or is it more the stuff no. I've sold first party? I can kind of see some demographic on it. Like like what are what are some of the things I have visibility into? Yeah, it's it's all your data, um, and it is. A lot of ordered and shipped and traffic data, but then there's a lot of indexing kind of going on. So Amazon still doesn't kind of give you the full picture. They still have um, some indexes that that kind of are helpful, but but not super helpful. Um, so like benchmarking, like you're the number three seller of vitamins or something like that kind of thing? Yeah, and it's kind of like um, like a unique visitor's index and page view index and things like that. Okay. How about um, uh, can you see search data? So we always, uh, again, these third-party guys are always really fascinated by getting to that kind of data. Um, can you see that? So can you see like popular search terms or how people searched and found your products? Yeah, you can see some of that information. Um, and so that is, a, and that's also a good source of keyword harvesting to be able mm-hmm. to kind of inform your your CPC, your paid search strategy too. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So the you know Amazon's a very buttoned up company from the outside at least, and this one area where it's like you got vendor central and seller central, and those two systems. Like I've been in meetings where I've had to introduce people on the teams to each other, and they're kind of like, oh, you know, I didn't know what you know, and they're like the vendor central guys will ask me about APIs on seller central and stuff. <laughs> um, is that just because they're just totally different silos within Amazon? Or do you see those kind of coming together with this hybrid? And, you know, there's some of these programs are starting to leak back and forth. There, there seems to be more use cases where people are kind of sharing the systems. Um, I think you exactly hit it. They're, they're very siloed within Amazon. And so um, you'll see functionality in Seller Central and people that use Vendor Central, like, why can't we have that? And so, and the reason why is because they're, they're very siloed. Um, and that, that actually contributes to the complexity, not just within the systems, but even within the teams within Amazon working with them, kind of everybody kind of acts as their own teams and, and they're, they are pretty siloed. Yeah. I saw a, an article where one of these, um, fancy ad execs, uh, you guys know it better than I do. Um, he was kind of saying, you know, a reporter kind of asked him, you know, you're one of the largest agencies out there. What keeps you up at night? And you know, I think he was thinking about, you know, I don't know what he was thinking about, like the next ad format. And he said, Amazon. Um, and, you know, I think uh, he didn't really expand on it that I saw. And I, I think, you know, the reading the tea leaves was Amazon has all this data. They're getting all these searches. This ad platform is really scaling up. Do you think, um, do you think, Folks like Google and and the other ad platforms should be starting to worry about this because you know three billion is is nice, but it's still that's kind of peanuts compared to kind of Google and Facebook. Uh, do you are you really super bullish on the Amazon ad platform? I I think that so to your point, I mean Amazon's like two and and Google's what like like eighty or something like yeah. that. So they're yep. they're still so much larger and the budgets are so much bigger. But I just think the the potential for Amazon and, and maybe it searches today and but tomorrow it's voice and Alexa is certainly out in front of everybody on that. So and I think that just the other is the the wild card of being able to figure it out. And I think the traditional search agencies are are still struggling with being able to to figure out the best ways to run um, search across all the platforms, uh, especially Amazon, um, because it's it's very different than, than Google and Bing. Melissa, one of the things that I, I always find a little bit ironic is Amazon is such a data-driven, quantitative company, right? And they, they use so much data to run their own business. But even if you're sort of on the, the premium version of ARA, like you, you still don't really get all the data about how your product's performing that you'd want to make good decisions on the Amazon platform. So I know a lot of brands have to rely on a, a bevy of third-party products that scrape Amazon for data or you know harvest all the, the type-ahead search suggestions and stuff like that to sort of augment what, what Amazon shares. Is, do you find that as well? Absolutely. And like I, I kind of mentioned about the clunkiness of ARA and part of it is just to download data, it, it's, it takes forever. It spools and it's, it's really cumbersome. And I think that that's one of the, the biggest complaints across the board. And so a lot of these third parties have come up with really great solutions. And then, of course, the biggest solution is being able to, what you alluded before, of the share data. And that's, that's kind of been the golden nugget and ticket for all these companies where they actually have figured out a way to come up with what brand shares are on Amazon. And so there's, there's kind of a, a top list of, um, you know, one click retail and Profitero and Clavis and Tencent data and all these guys. Um, Stackline is kind of one of the newest ones um, of ex Amazon folks, but there's kind of a slew of these companies that most of the CPG companies kind of invest in use as kind of a supplement because they do provide really great data um, that they are using instead of ARA. Interesting. And, and so uh, kind of uh, save all, all of our listeners a ton of time of all these marketing vehicles. Are there some to you that are the no brainer best performers or, you know, does it really vary depending on the, the category and the product? Paid search is really the, the golden, the golden ticket. Um, you know, I think like 90% of, of, of um, products sold or result of a search or something like that. And um, 
you know, that has been, that has seen the best returns. And of course it does because it's pretty low in the purchase funnel, but, you know, people are dumping more and more money into paid search because they're seeing a lot of great performance. And do do brands tend to see like similar returns to Google PLAs or are they even better because there's, there's such a concrete call to action there or what, like what, what should a brand expect in terms of a return on, on investment? (laughs) I think well, I think it's um, I think it's unfair because Google's been around for so long and Amazon's so new, and so um, you know Amazon keywords are probably you know in comparison cheaper. Um, but I would say that 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 is heating up significantly. Uh, but I think the returns are are so good that there's more and more budgets being allocated to it. Um, so that's, that's what I would say there. Yeah. And do you have a feel like one of the interesting questions is what budget is that Amazon paid search coming out of, right? Like if, if you're a brand, there's a, a brand marketing group, you know, that, that are typically the folks that would be buying ads on Google, um, or Facebook or things like that. And then there's a, an account team that's responsible for sales on Amazon. And, you know, that account team is typically the ones that would be paying, a a slotting fee or a merchandising fee to a retailer. And so the, this Amazon ad platform is kind of in between those two things. Absolutely. And that, and that is, um, if you asked Amazon, they would say that you should be getting these from search budgets. Um, some do come from there, but, but it's a hodgepodge all across the board. And what you do find is that if it does come from co-op budgets, you get capped and that's that's a challenge too. Yeah. But right now, it's kind of really across the board, and it's part of that trying to figure out e-commerce. Like, where does some of this money come from? How, you know, how does it? Is it a ad platform? Is it branding money? So that that is a huge challenge right now. Yep. And in fairness, like Amazon's answer is a little self-serving, right? Because if, <laughs> if it comes out of that search budget, it's coming out of Google's pocket. But if it if it comes from that account team, it, it's part of the cost of goods of the product that's likely going to make its way back into the loaded cost. Yeah, um, they, they, they are. <laughs> yeah. So is there a particular CPG or a particular product that you, you know, you think of as sort of market leading in terms of doing a great job of leveraging Amazon, like either for everything or specifically for ads? Like, is there an, a go-to example you use when you're showing showing brands how to do it right? Yeah, I think that there's, there's you know, lots of brands doing a really good job. I think that what Tide has done, and, and it's hard to, it's hard to have the pocketbook of Tide. So that's, that's always a hard one to um, compare yourself to. Uh, if you're a normal CPG company, but, you know, with everything from innovating around product development with creating pods and they even created e-commerce bundles that incorporated other brands of theirs into one SKU um, to what they're doing in marketing. They, they really own search and they, um, they have a great job uh, driving awareness with display advertising um, one that I, another one that I also like is Buy, which is the. Are you guys familiar with the energy drink Buy? Mm, no. B A I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I call it Bay. Bay. <laughs> I've been saying it wrong. <laughs> so they they won a 2015 Grocery of the Year uh, vendor of the year uh, at Amazon, which I didn't even know Amazon gave out that award, but they. <laughs> They do a really good job of targeting Amazon's customers to find unique customers and then uh, giving them a discount to try and then finding those customers and closing them to to subscribe to their products. So they really use display advertising in a smart way with targeting. So I think that those are some some two really great brands that do a good job on Amazon. So, so were pods developed for Amazon, essentially? The So I heard that it, they were developed for e-commerce and yeah. for Amazon. So I, 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 I don't have it from the source. Maybe you can have someone from the Tide brand on, but I hear that they don't like to talk to, to people. So <laughs> maybe we can get that answer. Okay. Because they're secretive or even... because they just don't like people? I, I think that they just... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, so we're, we're right up against our time. So maybe we'll do a future of e-commerce lightning round. 
so you, as an Amazon insider, why do you think Amazon's so successful? This may be hard to answer in a lightning round, but you know, what, what, what are some of the key things that come to mind there? I think it's the people that work there. I think that they really engender a culture of innovation. Um, it's okay to fail. I think that if if uh, if you're not failing, you're not succeeding. And so I think that they have just really sharp people uh, working on all these different products. So that's that's uh, that's one of the reasons I think. Yeah. So. Um... You know, so Walmart has acquired Jet, and they're doing a lot around grocery and delivery. Do you think they have a shot at kind of stopping Amazon on this one category, and and kind of, uh, you know, maybe out innovating them or at least pacing them? What what's what's your thought there? I think that they at least have the opportunity to give them a run for their money. I mean, they did that with Diapers.com. Mark Lord did, mm-hmm. and Amazon bought that. Um, so I, I think that they have some potential, but. I know right now a lot of people uh, feel like it's it's more on the challenging side than the optimism side. But I'm optimistic that maybe they at least can provide a lot of for um, a lot for you guys to talk about. Yeah, do you see brands kind of um, upping their Walmart game because they're kind of upping their Amazon game, or or is it just very two totally different groups that you don't really see bleed over? I think that people feel like if they can figure Amazon out, they can figure e-commerce out. And it's such a yeah. big percentage of their business. So that's that's what I see right now. Interesting. Cool. So Walmart is kind of still like a store-based kind of thing, and Amazon is the e-commerce thing. Well, I think that they feel like if they can create you know, e-commerce packaging, it, it works on Amazon and Walmart. Yeah, and direct, too, if they want to do that someday. Yeah. Um, this one's kind of a selfish one. So, so I'm kind of, uh, my new venture has got kind of a, uh, it's a direct, uh, it's a consumer oriented company. And we try to, you know, I've, I've read all the books about Amazon, try to be customer centric, but you find customers kind of, you know, sometimes they take advantage of you a little bit. And how does Amazon keep that from happening? Um, I've heard this kind of, uh, from some insiders, this thing called sugar. Do you know anything about that? The sugar scores? Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. Like knowing who your best customers are and treating them kind of differently. Yeah. And then there's also a, you know, if you have a, an, a bad sugar store, then um, you treat them differently too. Yeah. I so, mean, so people that abuse like the return system or I don't know what would give you a low sugar store, but um, I'm just kind of, uh, you know, kind of curious, how does that work? And, and, and as a, as a merchant, do you have any impact on that at all? Or is that like a whole nother kind of side of things? Um, I think so. I definitely know that, that Amazon's very sensitive to people gaming their promotions and discounts. And they, they track it through data um, to understand how people are trying to um, maybe do things that they shouldn't be doing. And so that's something that they're sensitive to. And they try to release products that don't enable uh, that stuff. So I do remember so many things happening where, you know, it's, it's always trial and error. Like it, it just kind of happens because people are, are pretty creative about ways that things that you would never even think about. And so that's, so that's the challenge there is, is not even knowing what, what some of those things are. Um, like just one example is, uh, the deal site. So slickdeals.net. And I remember that, um, you know, that they used to be a big affiliate of Amazon's and mm. they were driving so much traffic, but they were driving not the best customers in. And so then they kind of changed the affiliate kind of rules um, on on those kind of sites so that they wouldn't get um, such great uh, revenue shares. So I think that that's, that's one example of trying to figure out who are the best customers. Mm. Okay. So you'd have a lower sugar score if you're kind of constantly going through and milking that kind of a system. Um, and obviously like if you're a, if you're Jason and you get like five packages a day, you probably have a pretty high sugar score. Right. Well, I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> I definitely get too much sugar. 
Um, how about let's let's take it kind of super high level here. Last question. Um, anything else you think about? Um, you know, you're you're probably uh, spending a lot of time on the tactical stuff. It sounds sounds like helping these brands, but it, it, as you kind of elevate and think about what are some of the things you see in the next three or five, maybe even ten years that are really fascinating that you think are going to change the overall either Amazon or e-commerce or retail. What what's what's on your radar there? Well, I don't know if this is true or not, but I I would love to see, and this is kind of one of the <laughs> doubt this will happen. But you know, as Prime expands and as they add more services and they really get people continuing to be into that ecosystem, you know, like what are those services that they're going to offer to keep enticing people into their program? And so, um, my big idea for Amazon is to offer Prime health insurance. That that's my big idea. Yeah. Uh, one that there's a rumor is um, home services. You know, so they have Amazon home services and some people saw some ads for home cleaners and they were kind of thinking that maybe there's some services that could be added to Prime, you know, so discounted home cleaning and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I thought that was another interesting one that I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, I definitely could see that. Well, folks, it has happened again. We've wasted another perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Um, where can people find you online? I know you do some pretty interesting writing and that kind of stuff. Are you a Twitterer or are you more on LinkedIn? Or where, where can people go if they want to learn more about you and, and follow what you're you're producing? Absolutely. I'm, I'm more of a LinkedIn person, but uh, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn, Melissa Burdick. Yep, and it's E-M-E-L-I-S-S-A-B-U-R-D-I-C-K. Um, and then also, uh, you were kind enough to join me on stage. Uh, we're going to be at the Internet Retailer together, uh, IRCE it's officially called. Uh, and I do a pre-workshop called Amazon and Me, and you're going to be one of our speakers. So uh, you'll be talking about Amazon marketing, which is, so this is just a taste of what you'll be talking about. You'll be going a lot deeper on that. Uh, appreciate you doing that and look forward to, to learning more then. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for being on the show, Melissa. And until next week, happy commercing, everyone. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.